my name is Justin McLuhan, and here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today we're going to be talking about Bill Gunn. Who? Uh, he's the director of Ganja and Hess, Personal Problems, screenwriter of The Landlord. He's a playwright. He's a novelist. Ah, so that must be why I've never heard of him. <laughs> That's right. I'm kidding. We've both heard. Of him. <laughs> yeah, we both. We're heard of him. serious cinephiles here, <laughs> but most people haven't heard of him because you know there was that period in the early '70s where there were certain. Uh, African-American filmmakers who were emerging in the studio system and independently. Mm -hmm. People like Melvin Van Peebles, Ozzie Davis, Gordon Parks, Gordon Parks Jr. And this guy, Bill Gunn, should have been one of them. He was all primed to be one of them. He was because uh, The Learning Tree came out and right after Bill Gunn directed Stop! And then after that, I believe Ozzie Davis uh, directed Cotton Comes to Harlem. The difference between those two other films is that his film was never released. Never released. It was slapped with an X rating. It was recut by the studio Warner Brothers. And then they just went, I don't, we don't even want to bother. And they just put it in a vault. And to this day, it's never been uh, consumed publicly beyond one or two retrospective screenings for Bill Gunn. That is insane. I have never heard of that happening other than this situation. It's the a rainy day in New York of its day. <laughs> That's right. (laughs) And like... Why did that happen? Well, it's obviously because Bill Gunn is black. And Warner Brothers like, ah, people won't even care about this anyway. Maybe the learning tree didn't make enough money and they were like, oh, you know, people don't want black filmmakers at this point. I mean, it's hard for a black filmmaker in a white system at any time. Mm. It was particularly hard for Bill Gunn. He had a particular run of bad luck. Mm -hmm. Ganja and Hess, which is in some small circles a beloved cult movie now, was not the movie that the people who paid for it wanted to see. Well, technically, it kind of was because it was actually picked up by producers who didn't really know what they were doing, but they didn't want, like, a horror film. They wanted something maybe a little bit more arty, but when uh, Bill Gunn delivered it to them, they were like, whoa, that's too arty for us. And when they opened it for a week or two in theaters, it didn't do the business that they wanted it to. So they were like, all right, we, we'll just sell it to another distributor who then recut it to the point that uh, Bill Gunn's name was not on the film. It was a different director, the person who re-edited it. It was renamed Blood Couple and released as a 78-minute film. And this is a two-hour picture in its original form. And his other major movie project, Personal Problems, it's a two-part shot-on-video piece originally meant for PBS, but of course it wasn't shown on PBS. Mm. It was shown... A little bit in 1980, 1981. It was like cultural sl- institutions. You it know. was slotted. It did play on TV once at like 11 p.m. and 12 a.m. Mm. Being like, well, who's going to watch this? But it existed, if at all, in badly mutilated or poor quality versions. Because remember, this was shot on video. And this is like even beyond what we know as shot on video. Cameras that use the tubes, which create like a um, smearing effect when lights cross across them. It was, like, made, it was shot in 1979. Yeah, yeah. And it was recently restored and mm-hmm. put out on Blu-ray by Kino mm-hmm. just this year. So this year, people have been talking, some people have been talking a lot about personal problems. So Bill Gunn, as an auteur, is finally being given some recognition. I mean, it took long enough because, like, in his lifetime, like, Bill Gunn was a playwright. He was born in 1934. He did, like, a bunch of plays that had a lot of acclaim. He was an actor. He acted on stage with James Dean and Montgomery Clift. And then, like, he was on his way to 
stardom, but then like stuff like stop, which is very um, ironic in this sense, mm-hmm. um, kind of put a brakes on his career. Um, he did write the screenplay for uh, The Landlord, which was Hal Ashby's first movie, which I don't know if you got a chance to watch. I did watch it today. And what did you think of it? I liked it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I It's definitely one of those uh, post-graduate mm-hmm. movies. Uh, so Hal Ashby directed it, Norman Jewison produced it, and Bill Gunn adapted it from... Kristen Hunter's novel. I don't know who Kristen Hunter is. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know much about the novel, but those who are familiar with it say that a lot of what's good about the movie comes from Bill Gunn's pen. Yeah. Know? And at this point, Bill Gunn had sold a bunch of screenplays, but none of them have been produced, like a lot of screenwriters do. But it's interesting that uh, The Landlord is a film of his that got produced because it is very focused on the black experience in America. So the story involves Bo Bridges, that's right, Jeff's brother, who plays <laughs> all of our favorite Bridges, right? <laughs> plays kind of an, uh, he's one of my top three, definitely. <laughs> he plays... Oh no, not Dave Bridges, you forgot about him. <laughs> he plays this uh, upper class dilettante in his late 20s who decides, hey, I'm gonna buy a townhouse in Park Slope, which at this time in particular was a very black neighborhood in Brooklyn. I'm gonna buy this townhouse and become a landlord and i'm gonna refurbish it and it's gonna be great and of course you know, he's a bit of a gentrifier so a lot of the movie is a bit of a culture clash comedy between this uh, you know he's sort of a white liberal type mm-hmm. an upper class white liberal and of course he's got a mother played by lee grant who is very much of the well we're all liberals that you know they they should have their rights i just i don't want them in my neighborhood you know that academy kind of... uh nominated lee grant for this film oh i'm glad to hear that <laughs> she's very good and so bo bridges he gets involved with this complicated thing that he doesn't really understand as this white rich guy who's introduced laying back in like a lounge chair being served by his black butler (laughs) and black butlers i think uh uh, pervade the uh, bill gunn filmography it begins as sort of a comedy and it gets a little progressively darker as it goes along as bow bridges first there's a somewhat tense relationship with the tenants in the building then he finds himself uh, attracted to a woman who was voted Miss Sepia 1957 mm-hmm. uh, and they start strike up a relationship there's tension between her her husband mm-hmm. uh, and also his mother Lee Grant it goes in a, a rather more dramatic direction as it goes along yeah it starts like real goofy Altman-esque mm-hmm. like uh, Hal Ashby was famous for his editing style that he brought to like early Norman Jewish and films like Thomas Crown mm-hmm. Affair so this is like a film with like a lot of like goofy almost family guy cutaways mm-hmm. to like something will happen and then you see like a fantasy sequence that'll cut right back well there yeah there's one point when he says to his mother oh I'm dating a black woman and then it cuts to like a tribal black woman yeah that's right like again a family guy style cutaway i think it's i I mean i liked it some of the satire about white liberals seems a little more familiar to me now than it probably would have then right like it it definitely feels like a movie that was like very much of the zeitgeist it doesn't seem as fresh to me now as it probably would have then you don't think people still act like that well (laughs) certainly they act like that but it's like i'm not even i'm not even really complaining it's just like it, it, it it seemed just a bit more familiar to me now i mean like this is a film that it was uh, directed by Hal Ashby, who would go on and do Harold and Maude, I think was a film yeah. right after this. And, it was uh, shot by yeah. Gordon Willis. The visual style is very heavy, I think. <laughs> yes, it is. As you would expect from Gordon Willis. And I'm <laughs> the not... master of darkness himself. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm not sure how much... I don't know, maybe I was just in a bad mood today, but it weighed very heavily on me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like this film, uh, mm-hmm. especially that Bo Bridges 
is so annoying in the main role. Mm. Like, he's not like a Dustin Hoffman type who's a nevish, like, oh, I kind of feel bad with, uh, about him. Yeah. And, like, something like The Graduate, Dustin Hoffman is still running around in the same upper class circles. This is Bo Bridges uh, in the so-called lower class and that he's never going to fit in this, even though he tries really hard to. Yeah, and actually you project yourself more onto Dustin Hoffman than you do Bo Bridges. Mm-hmm. Bo Bridges, you, you kind of hate him or if you don't hate him you you viscerally don't want to be him and like the only reaction you can have to what he's doing is for you to be like you can't be in this situation no matter (laughs) you think you're doing the right thing but you can't like it's never going to work this way yeah and i mean like as it does get more serious toward the end i almost felt it got a little too much like a hollywood happy ending i mean it's still Uh bittersweet and difficult but it is like it's not the downer that it could have been of the apocalyptic ending that it could have had and as far as like bill gunn's first studio produced screenplay i feel that you can definitely feel his voice in this film mm-hmm. uh, which would never happen again because he would never make a studio picture he did however make ganja and Hess in 1973 mm-hmm. which from what i've read like it was almost financed on the grounds to be kind of like blackula right? uh, no like no? they've gone back and forth on this where like the yeah, producers yeah. said they wanted a vampire picture which bill gunn said i don't want to do this they said okay that's fine as long as you just give us something like a little bit arty okay but like not too arty like they didn't want blackula uh, that's gone around a lot especially okay the last uh, the version that came out which was um blood couple what a terrible title <laughs> and then it actually went to the public domain and got like re-edited recut mm-hmm. and so like what bill gunn delivered to them i can understand distributor being like what is this mm-hmm. especially if they wanted something with vampires in it which it does have and they wanted something sort of black exploitation yeah it is not a black exploitation no, film but it is very much about blackness yes it is uh, so it stars Dwayne jones from night of the living dead he plays is Dr. Hess Green, who is a rich black anthropologist who is addicted to blood. And he's been studying the history of this particular African tribe that ate and drank human blood. And he has an assistant, played by Bill Gunn himself, who I guess infects him with this vampire curse. Yeah, he stabs him with a ritualistic dagger from one of the things that Dwayne Jones was studying, and that's what turns him into a vampire. But you could be confused about what uh, actually happened in the story, because this is very fractured in its storytelling method. So I watched half this movie, and then I went back and just started watching it again Did from you? the beginning, because I was having trouble following for the first half. And then on that second viewing, I was more into it. So Bill Gunn, as the assistant, commits suicide and Dr. Hess... Mm-hmm. You know, goes to town on him, uh, eats them all up, uh, and he, but Bill Gunn's <laughs> like a zombie, you might say. Bill Gunn's estranged wife, Ganja, mm-hmm. comes to visit and quickly realize what's happened to her husband. But she and Doctor Hess get married anyway. She becomes infected with his vampire curse. Uh, eventually. There a love triangle forms between the two of them and a younger man who comes into the picture. But finally, Hess, I guess, tires of his vampiric <laughs> life and re-embraces Christianity. Which kills him. Which kills him. Uh, but as it plays out in the movie, it's much less simple than, <laughs> yes. than I've said. It's very... Dreamlike. Yeah. Uh, and the way that Bill Gunn shoots things as well is almost as if, like, it's off the cuff, like, Cassavetes-ish. Like, you'll get a beautiful composition every now and then, but a lot of the time it feels like he's just catching these moments out of the corner of his camera. Well, there was one early on that was so strange to me and felt like right out of a dream, and I think this was maybe the moment when I thought I need to start watching this again because I'm not, I'm not quite getting this. It was... Dwayne Jones comes out at night. Mm-hmm, and, I know, yeah. And he sees Bill Gunn up in a tree. 
and from the tree is hanging a noose, Mm -hmm. but the noose is not remarked upon, and it's very dark out, and you see Dwayne Jones in the foreground, this noose in the background, and then, like, almost out of focus in the background, Bill Gunn's feet hanging out of the tree. You never see his head either. You hear him talking, and you're not sure how it got to this point, or what triggered this, other than that you learn later on that Bill Gunn is uh, dealing with some mental difficulties, Mm -hmm. and they have this conversation, which is like, I want to commit suicide, and Dr. Hess is like, no, come down. Like, I don't want you to use my rope. We are in a white neighborhood. If a dead black man shows up, they're going to come to me asking questions. Yeah. And it's so unsettling because, you know, you see a rope. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what does it remind you of? Yeah. But there's a general sort of dreamy atmosphere through the whole movie, I think, because of the soundtrack as well. There's a lot of kind of abrasive African tribal chanting, which mixes also with very discordant atonal music and that's sort of omnipresent throughout the movie what's funny about like Gunn's take on vampirism and like all these already vampire films the word vampire is never said in Mm -hmm. this version Mm -hmm. um is that it's a film about addiction Mm -hmm. and this is like a theme that like later vampire movies like the addiction Mm -hmm. the abel ferrera film and pretty much anything afterwards would tackle but like gun is taking it in a very specific african-american way and like what does this mean right so there's that scene where Dwayne jones is at a clinic and he sets fire to the garbage can so that everyone goes into the room to set out the fire and meanwhile he goes into the place where they store the bags of blood and he takes them this reminds you of you know a drug addict Mm -hmm. you know raiding the counter at a pharmacy or something but it also makes you think that this is a rich man who has sort of the word that often comes up in discussions of this movie is assimilation. Mm-hmm. There's a rich man who was sort of assimilated into the upper class who's now, you he, know, he, coming down. Yeah, and his bodies realize that, oh no, society has deemed that you have to act this way. Yeah. And he's also pilfering from vulnerable places. Mm-hmm. He kills a prostitute he kills a pimp he kills people who are on the margins of society yeah he doesn't kill like rich white women i'm sure the producers would have loved if that's what happened Mm -hmm. but no what he does is he actually kills the people who are the most vulnerable Mm -hmm. not the people that like oh if this was a black exploitation film this is who you'd really want to see him take down and i think that that's what you know, distributors and the general audience at the time had difficulty struggling with. Yeah, it is very unsettling. And there's also, at his home, he's got this butler who you very rarely see the butler's head. It's often cut off. Uh, You know, in in his review, Ashley Clark, writing for Reverse Shot, mentioned that it's like those old Tom and Jerry cartoons where there would be a black maid, but you only see, like, the black maid's feet. Mm Mm-hmm. But then later on, it's revealed that the butler is the one that's in charge of the church procession that he goes to at the end of the yes, film. Yes. Um, but the movie is also very earthy, not only in its constant use of uh, a lot of kind of uh, African symbolism and, and African sort of visual motifs, but also in its rather heavy sexuality and its conflation of sex and death mm-hmm. and you know blood and you know spit and saliva and juices and all, all and that sweat other stuff. and all all the stuff we got and it's kind of like you know maybe this is a facile interpretation of it but it's like house has ascended to this upper class but like this is the stuff that really unites us mm-hmm. you know it, it it transcends 
time and class. But it's also the thing that can, like, damn you, because, like, Marlene Clark, uh, in between her discovering that her husband has died and her marrying Hess, she has what's essentially an almost to-the-camera monologue, Mm -hmm. disconnected from anything, because there's no intro or outro, about why she would continue to hang out with someone like Hess, about how when she was a child, she was playing with the kids, and her mother, when she got home, accused her of being a slut. Mm-hmm. Because she was chasing a boy, and she was like, "No, I was just playing with some." And her mother was like, "No, I know that's what you were doing." And she was like, "Well, I never want to be hurt like that again. Mm-hmm. If that's the assumption that they're going to make, I'm going to make sure that it, Ganja always comes out on top. That I survive and I cause myself to survive, mm-hmm. not other people, no matter what they think." So it's a very beautiful movie. It's a very overwhelming sort of sensory experience, and you can kind of see him. I mean, it's a genre film, but he's trying to sort of free himself from the genre. It's a movie that works on you sort of like a poem or a piece of music does. And it feels to me like aesthetically an interesting transition point between the landlord and personal problems, which is as free as any movie I've ever seen. Well, before we leave Ganja and Hess, I mean, we should point out that Bill Gunn did bring it to the Cannes Film Festival that year mm-hmm. against his distributor's wishes, where it won, like, Best of the Fest and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and it got a standing ovation like every con film, and it just rave reviews. Didn't do anything for him because the distributors were like, well, it's not making any money, so they buried it. And the actual original version, you couldn't even show it to anybody to get any other jobs. And the other thing about Ganja and Hess is that Spike Lee remade it mm-hmm. in his crowdfunded movie, the sweet blood of the Jesus. And man, the people not like the Spike Lee version. Yeah, I saw it a few years ago and I didn't like it. I mean, I only just saw Ganja and Hess. Mm-hmm. Y- you watched it today and you report that it is pretty much a shot-by-shot remake. It's uh, a scene-by-scene, scene, scene, yeah. yeah. And it's really interesting why Spike Lee would want to remake this film beyond the fact that he loves the original source material because he just does the straight version of it where it's not showy it's almost sterile in the way things are presented everything is kind of explained it almost feels like the blood couple version of Ganja and Hess well I remember it having this very cold digital affect to Mm, it it does very different from the really warm and earthy and sensual Bill Gunn movie but like uh, Spike Lee like he even does the shot of the guy sitting in the tree with the rope hanging like he doesn't even reinterpret himself he just does the exact beats and I can understand why people reacted so kind of uh, negatively toward it because he makes his character uh, of Hess very cold and distant and he makes Ganja very in your face and aggressive so there's kind of like a pull away from these characters while the fractured narrative that uh, Gun uh, gives you actually brings you towards them so it's really interesting how you can tell the same story yeah. in different styles and get two different effects from them I remember thinking The Sweet Blood of Jesus felt a bit like a late period David Dakota movie <laughs> oh, it's not that bad there's much more control in <laughs> but it you, than that you know what I'm talking about right yeah that kind of digital look yeah kind of, uh, set in mansions and stuff like that which yeah. is where the sweet blood of jesus and just takes kind place. of awkward and not very good acting yeah well i mean like spike lee he just subtlety is not his game like yeah. the first person that um has kills when he goes to the doctor he gets like an aids test and that's like a big right. suspenseful sequence it's also erotic in a different sort of way than ganja and hess is isn't it like well I, it's very direct in the almost a porno kind of way yeah yeah which is very different mm-hmm. um so after that uh bill gunn kind of 
struggled for the rest of his career when it comes to movies. I'm not 100% familiar with how much success he had as a playwright, but supposedly he just kept writing plays and they were produced. Like when he passed away, he had a play that was going to open in a few days based on his work. He had at least two works that dealt with his experiences in Hollywood. One was a novel called Rhinestone Cowboy. The other was a play called Black Picture Show. Maybe interesting stuff to investigate. Well, yeah, um, his novel, or maybe it was a play, I maybe get confusing both of them, was about his experiences trying to write um, the Muhammad Ali biopic for the studio mm-hmm. and how it just didn't happen at that point and was so difficult. I'd be fascinated to read it, but uh, I did not have time to order it. You have to directly from the publisher to be able to get a copy of it. Now, Personal Problems is a very unique collaboratory project. It was based on an original idea, quote unquote, by Ishmael Reed, the novelist, uh, and it was produced by this man named Steve Cannon, who was sort of a, a art world impresario in the Lower East Side, and the director of photography, Robert Polidaro, was a very prestigious photographer, and you had Bill Gunn. And, and we should point out that Bill Gunn was hired to this project. Mm-hmm. He did not create it or anything That's like right. that. It originated more than anything with Ishmael Reed. Mm-hmm. And was originally a radio play, like 30-minute episodes that came out a few times a year. That's right. And it was a parody as a radio play of soap operas. Mm-hmm. And it turned into the version that we have today because it was intended to sort of counteract black exploitation. The idea being, if you see black people in movies, it's either, you know, gone with the wind, they're either Mammy the mm-hmm. maid or something, or they're pimps and pushers and super fly. And that's so no matter what, like, they're hyper stylized. Yeah. So let's try to do something that is as close to reality as possible. Just the quiet desperation of black working and middle class lives in New York City. And how does Bill Gunn do this? Well, number one, they ended up shooting on video in a time where video was very um, young. Yes. So it looks like a very specific way that people, you don't associate it with that. And it has this ghostly quality. You, you know it if you've seen it. Yeah. 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 And um, the other decision that they make is that it's a parody of soap operas only in the sense that it's like the day-to-day lives of these people. Beyond that, the stylistic constraints of it, soap operas, like, it's not a parody other than the fact yeah. that it's doing the opposite of I what think, you I think the radio version of it was more of a parody. Mm-hmm. This is more sincere, and it's stylistically, what it's going for is similar to what John Cassavetes was going for. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, this kind of loosely scripted, but largely improvisatory, freeform thing. Uh, it stars um, Verda Mae Grovesner as Johnny May, who um, the film, we'll call it, we'll keep calling it a film, it's really two two-hour episodes, or um, just talking directly to the camera, in a way that at first, you're like, wait, is this a documentary? Is she talking about herself, or mm-hmm. is she not? And you quickly realize that, oh no, this is a character, and it's all integrated in this story, which the way that it kind of plays out is in these very long scenes mm-hmm. that you quickly realize are actually not in chronological order Mm -hmm. and that they're shuffled all over the place and that it's up to the viewer to kind of figure out where you are and how this stuff connects. So I would honestly recommend people go out and get the Kino Mm Blu-ray and just watch it without hearing us talk about it (laughs) because it is a very, at first, disorienting but eventually quite immersive experience to watch it and I think it 
I, for me at least, it sort of benefited from going in cold. But uh, if you don't want to do that, I guess I'll quickly summarize what it's about. <laughs> yep. Uh, so Johnny May, who is a woman, by the way, Johnny May is a nurse in a Harlem hospital, working the reception desk. She's in a loveless marriage with Charles, played by Walter Cotton, who we only meet, I think, an hour into it. Mm-hmm. We hear a lot about him, but he finally shows up. And as she explains at one point, I'm not unhappy but I'm not, I'm not happy, happy. Yeah. which is sort of the key line of the movie. And what's happening is that she's having a relationship with another man. A pianist, Raymond, played by Sam Wayman, who I found out is Nina Simone's brother. Huh, there you go. Very interesting. And there's a one of the best scenes of the movie is this, I think, four-minute scene where he serenades her on the piano with this very emotional song while the camera closes in on her face and she's crying. And mm-hmm. it's... I think a very powerful and overwhelming scene. And especially when you tie it to the style that it's using. Like I talk yeah. about documentary before and I always hate it when people say like, ah, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's very documentary style. Mm-hmm. It's like, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Personal Problems is documentary style. Like if you didn't know any better, you could assume that what you're seeing was shot from like multiple cameras mm-hmm. and that it was just happening in the moment because these performances are so raw and it feels so real. And like that happy, not unhappy line it's not like these crazy melodramatic things happening it's just everyday crappy shit that these people have to deal with and because we're staying with these scenes for so long you start to feel the weight of these things as it plays onward yeah so there's some drama at home Charles Mm -hmm. has his elderly father there and he's also got two house guests who are useless layabouts and the first episode ends with Johnny May blowing her top, basically, and Mm -hmm. saying, we got to get some order in this place. Uh, The second episode largely takes place after the death of Charles's father, who went in for routine surgery and never came out. Mm -hmm. And there's a long, long scene at the wake in the apartment as confrontations, long buried resentments are aired. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I, I won't spoil what comes after that. And it is like a soap opera, a novel, because you're dealing with all these different characters and the film can just branch out and just mm-hmm. follow somebody else for a while. Like, Will said that we only meet some characters an hour in. Mm-hmm. Like, that main plot of the people living with her, that only comes in, like, an hour, like, 30 minutes into the first episode. Mm-hmm. And it it's touched upon in the second one as well, but that's not the center, which is what you would expect. Like, this film never takes the tact that you think it will mm-hmm. or go down the alleyways dramatically that would deliver something that's more conventional. And when I say that this is as free a movie as I've ever seen, it's got all these digressive and discursive scenes that, you know, together like a pointillist painting, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, like create, create a picture. So there's that incredible scene where a character who's a black Republican is having this debate with this white left-wing radical the scene is hard to follow because there's so many people in the room and there's so much dialogue it's like robert altman but more so yeah so you have to really pay attention to what they're saying and the white guy you know he's right yes. on a lot of what he says because but he's a white guy but it's when you yeah. watch a scene and it starts you assume that you're going to be like oh this white guy is wrong and he's like a goofball and then the other black character starts talking about how Reagan is right and Reagan's going to clean stuff up. <laughs> He's the black Republican. And so as a viewer, you're like, wait, how am yeah. I supposed to react to this? But you hate this white guy. Yeah, you hate him. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's a big goofball. Uh, but there's, you know, a long scene, a long, boring scene, frankly, with Johnny May, who's just checking somebody into the hospital, mm-hmm. going through the whole checklist. And that's, as you said, a scene that just sort of weighs on you. And it's 
uh, mundane misery. Mm-hmm. Or there are these long, long music scenes with the pianist, mm-hmm. which I think are great. Yeah. Uh, you know, just very emotional scenes. Or there's that long scene where Johnny May is just gossiping with her girlfriends at an outdoor cafe. And it feels like a genuine conversation, them all talking over each other, uh, having their own side conversations while two people are talking about something else. Yeah, and visually, there's a lack of prettiness to the images. Mm -hmm. The images are are very harsh, but, I mean, over time... This is not an accident how these images look, I don't think. Like, you look at who the cinematographer is, who didn't shoot anything else, but was a famed art photographer... Mm -hmm. um, you understand that like this is a feel that they wanted to go for Mm -hmm. that there was like a visceral reaction you can get out of an audience because these are not the stories that you ever see Mm -hmm. and you're watching them in a way that you never see as well Mm -hmm. so both of them are coming together to make something uh that has never really existed before and it's hilarious that or more not less hilarious more sad that it's only been released in 2018 that's right so the images are very harsh and the story that it tells is very is as i said one of quiet desperation and it's almost like the movie is sort of daring you it's Mm -hmm. like come closer and find the beauty in this find the beauty in these harsh images find what is moving about this story like we're not going to spoon feed it to you Mm -hmm. right which is difficult when um, it originally aired at 11 p.m on whatever station that it ended up airing on where people are probably like what is this Uh (laughs) but like scenes come along that get you in i mean i i just saw this movie for the very first time and i feel like it is preparation like i feel i feel like i'm going to be living with this movie for a while it really quite affected me but it took a while on that first viewing to quite understand what was going on it's a good thing it's like four hours long yeah you can get right in there yeah and to fully get on board with what the artistic strategy was but certain scenes happen that are just so immensely powerful Mm -hmm. you know that, that they're your point of entry, or at least they were for me. And once you have those scenes, and the film almost knows it as well because it is playing with time, and so you'll see something and then it'll come back to it later, or you'll see something later in the film that will recontextualize something that happened at the beginning, but it never just like says, aha, you see this? Right. Like at one point at a party, you see somebody practicing the lines that he already used earlier yeah. in the film. And part two opens with a recap of part one, but it's different totally different yeah just jumbled in a different way that makes you remember what you've seen differently so uh bill gunn after that like we said he basically became a playwright um he passed away in 1989 uh, but he did get to act in losing ground which is often considered the second feature film to be directed by an african-american woman it was directed by kathleen collins what was the first uh it was a film that is currently unavailable i looked at it at imdb and it has no ratings wow uh i don't remember exactly what the title is and this second film came out in 1988 yep and it was buried i think it played on pbs once and unfortunately the director uh passed away and it was only rediscovered a few years ago again yeah uh and bill gunn has a huge role in it it's a great movie i almost feel like we could talk about it in another episode so uh but i would still recommend checking yeah. out losing ground right, from 1982 uh, let's get to that at some yeah. point yeah i mean like bill gunn for having done so few big things like you have ganjan hess and you got personal problem he's left such an impact on people already like ganjan hess is a film that has existed in, like, the cinephile consciousness. Like you said about personal problems that people live in, mm-hmm. and, like, they they can watch over and over again and get something other out of it, which is, like, such a fucking shame that Bill Gunn didn't get to make more stuff like that. Mm-hmm. 
I'm very happy to have discovered him. Yes. Uh, belatedly. And hopefully the people listening to this will go check out, like, all you gotta watch is Ganjin has some personal problems. You can do the, it in a day. Yeah. Go and check that stuff out. All right. So, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And this week on our Patreon, we talked about that guy. Dick Miller. Oh, that guy. <laughs> star of War of the Satellites. Star of A Bucket of Blood. And also the star, well, not the star. <laughs> Terminator. The, 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 Gremlins. The bit player who you know and love from all of Joe Dante's movies and many other movies in addition. If you know him, you love him. Yes. Like, if you recognize that face, there's nobody that's like, ugh, Dick Miller's on screen again. Walter Paisley is born. <laughs> and just to let people know, Uh, This episode is going to drop, and if you subscribe for the $10 tier, you'll get a newsletter sent out to you. It's a Christmas-themed newsletter, because it's going to come out in December. Uh, I can't tell you what it's going to be, but I can tell you that if you don't subscribe before December 1st, you're not going to get it, because you can't buy other copies, and that's it. But you can subscribe for next month's newsletter. As per usual, you can send us letters, again, importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And next week, we're going to be talking about Penelope Spheris. That's right who has an interesting bifurcated career. Mm -hmm. She is beloved as the director of the Decline of Western Civilization documentaries, the music documentaries. Also beloved for such classics as the Beverly Hillbillies. And Wayne's World. (laughs) Yes. And And the Little Rascals. Rascals. (laughs) And uh, an increasingly, I think, desperate series of comedies. Wait, what is the one with... The uh, Kid and I with Tom Arnold. No, no, no. I was thinking there's also... Didn't you direct the one with David Spade and one of the Wayne's brothers? Yeah. Senseless, Senseless, I think it was called. That's what it is, yeah. Um, So we're going to be definitely watching uh, one of the Decline movies. I think part two. Yeah, and Wayne's World and Beverly Hillbillies. Let's watch Beverly Hillbillies. Because we definitely want to get that... um... Jim Varney content. (laughs) (laughs) Wasn't he supposedly like drunk every day on set on that movie? Oh, was he? I didn't know that. Oh, I mean, well, discovered. I thought I read that somewhere. I remember thinking that he gave a very sturdy performance Mm -hmm. as Jed Clampett. (laughs) He but, respected but, but, the original. But but genuinely, I think he was the glue that held what I, what was the movie I together. saw that movie in theaters, and I have Whoa. no memory of it at all. I saw it on video a lot as a kid, and I have lots of memories of it. <laughs> um, how has there not been a Bowery Boys, like, Reboots? in that 90s, like, yeah. era? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean... Because there was only one Bowery Boys. <laughs> Leo Gorty. That's right. <laughs> the other guy. You know, if the Fairley Brothers Three Stooges had really caught on, oh, can you imagine? They should have done the Bowery Boys next. <laughs> what would that be, though? Like, they get chased by a ghost in a house or something like that? Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, it's like the, the Bowery Boys are less clearly defined than the Three Stooges are. Well, like, the joke of the Bowery Boys would be, it would be like old men playing children, which really the Three Stooges did yeah. in the movie version. Yeah. Also, also, you were just supposed to relate to the Bowery Boys as. Ooh, can as you imagine children. all the, like, problematic stuff that would start to be remade? Oh, no, Charlie Chan is back. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So that's what we're going to be doing next week. Until then, I'm Justin Nicolou. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. In addition to Nicholas Rogue, we lost another legend this weekend. I refer, of course, to the magician and also actor... Ricky Jay. Ricky Jay is kind of like Dick Miller in that when you see him, you know him. Very distinct voice. Very distinct kind of like persona. Most famous for appearing in a bunch of David Mamet films about like con men and stuff like that because he made that his bread and butter. Yeah. And also certain of the Paul Thomas Anderson movies, including Magnolia and Boogie Nights. Mm, great always, role in Boogie always Nights. Always happy to see him on screen. You know, he he's the one who 
goes to check out William H. Macy's wife getting fucked on the parking lot. Um, I watched um, like his main kind of magic show that he did, the one that was directed by David Mamet, which I believe was called Ricky Jay and his 52 Assistants, which is just like an hour. It was shot in 1996 of him like in front of a small audience just doing card tricks. Huh. And like his card tricks are so amazing because we've been kind of desensitized to like the biggest magic tricks you can do. Sure. And like what he focused on were the most simplest things that were impossible. <laughs> like yeah. just these like simple magic tricks. And the way that he kind of developed his act, which is that it was like a patter act where he was talking to the audience as he was doing things and not specifically, but it felt like he was explaining what he was doing. Mm -hmm. He never tried to make it look mystical or anything like that. And he always couched his magic in the lessons and the history of magicians telling stories of previous ones and stuff like that and how hard tricks are to do or what a name of a particular trick was. You know, if, uh, if you got an expanding brain chart Mm -hmm. and you know, at the bottom is Penn and Teller, who are these, you know, uh, cool, cool atheists who are like, hey, magic, it's actually fake. <laughs> and let us show you how fake it is, because we're not we're not here to let you spoon feed you or amaze you. Because if you think magic is real, you're dumb. And we're going to show it. Whereas whereas you get higher up, mm-hmm. you know, you got a guy like Ricky Jay who's like, yes, magic, magic is a con. Yeah. Now, now let me con you. Exactly. You that, it, there's an amazing New Yorker <sighs> article about him where he um, was like dealing cards and like playing poker with someone he's like oh if i did this would it be fair if i let you cut the deck would it be fair if i did this would it be fair yeah and like at the end of the day even though the other person could do whatever they wanted they still got the bottom cards that ricky j won he's like yeah it's not fair because yeah. i know how to play this and you don't i'll tell you what's not fair Penn and Teller, still around. <laughs> Ricky, Ricky Jay. Jay. Really. Well, Just... <laughs> he was always the guy that, like, kept to himself. Like, I, and I think that was not his downfall, but one of the reasons that he never became as big as somebody like Penn and Teller, mm. which is, like... He was obsessed with the idea of magic, but he was obsessed in a way that he would spend years on it mm. and then, mm. like, kind of show off the trick to a small audience. He didn't like to do big shows, and he definitely did not like to be, like, a performing monkey. There's mm. a story where, like, he was doing magic tricks, and someone was like, ah, come on, man, show me something really amazing. And he's like, all right, pick a card. What is it? Three of hearts? Okay. And then he just threw the cards across the room, <laughs> and he's like, check that wine bottle. Your, card's it. Your card is in it. <laughs> so he really is a, a living, or was a living, breathing David Mamet character. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really, everything that David Mamet has, 100% comes from Ricky Jay, who taught him everything that he knows, except for the bad stuff. <laughs> right, except for his odious politics. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Rest in peace, Ricky Jay. 